You may be seated. It's good to be here tonight. We're a Pentecostal miracle believing church. We better be because I got two to three hours of lecture. I got to get done in 45 minutes. So it's going to be easier to turn wine, uh, water into wine over that. So last time I spoke at this church, when I was done, they shut it down for a month. Don't get your hopes up. Anyway. Tonight, I might be a little bit different. Uh, as Pastor said, I'll be speaking about trauma, which is not the most desired sermon to be preaching on. But Pastor and I, for the last several months, have been talking, and you know, his, his sermons have been geared towards trauma issues dealing with that and in my line of work what I deal with most of the time so tonight what we're speaking on is trauma now I need to do some housework before we do this this is for those of you who don't know me I'm I'm a therapist but I'm also an ordained minister so I'm going to be going back and forth between preacher and therapist is that okay because that's just who I am this is a topic I really do take very seriously because we are very unaware of in our churches across this land how many people in each congregation is affected by trauma. For the message tonight is to, I guess what we could say, three groups of people. Those of you who have experienced trauma and you know it. For those of you who have not experienced trauma, and you're maybe about to find out that you have. And the third group about the rest of us, the church, and how we approach trauma. For those of you who have trauma, I, I have to make this little disclaimer here. I'm not going to get into the nitty details. If you start to get triggered, this is therapist talk here. here. If you begin to get triggered, you more than welcome our you know, you can leave, you won't insult me. For those of you who aren't traumatized and you leave, I will be insulted if you leave while I'm speaking. But we are going to be, as pastors announced, we are on the 13th of April, we're starting on Wednesday night during this time a trauma support group. We're going to call it From Pain to Purpose. And I'll kind of go over in this message about what the purpose is. And it's going to be over in the other building during this time, Kevin Evans' classroom. I don't know what number that is, but it's in Kevin Evans' classroom. He doesn't know that, but it's in his classroom. <sighs> Trauma is something that many times we avoid, many times we don't want to talk about, many times can be very emotional. I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, as you turn there. I go back to the statement that we do not know in our congregations and all the churches that just in this, in this city alone, the people that come and sit in our pews, that sit in our chairs, that come to our classes, that come hear our sermons, how many have secrets about their life? You get surprised so many times when someone finally... Can, you know, vents or opens up that 
curtain in their life to reveal about a traumatic event and the hurt that can stay for years. There may be someone in this room tonight that your hidden pain has been something that's been going on for decades. Wounds take a long time to heal. And I make no apology. Some of my minister friends thought I lost my salvation when I became an LPC. Uh, but I make no apologies that I, I, I base my counseling on the Bible, and, and, but I'm also a therapist. I like psychology. I love the brain. God created a wonderful instrument for us called the brain. And I'm, I'm not ashamed to say that I study the brain. But tonight we're going to look about what does it mean about trauma? How does the church approach this? And like, you thought I was joking. This could go two to three hours. I'm not. And so I'm going to condense this. Zechariah chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a log snatched from the fire? I want you to remember that term, a log snatched from the fire. Now Joshua was clothed in filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And he responded and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. And again he said to him, See, I have taken your guilt away from you and will clothe you with festive robes. Then I said, have them put a clean headband on his head. So they put the clean headband on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, the Lord of armies says this, if you walk in my ways and perform my service, then you will both govern my house and be in charge of my courtyards, and I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. I'm going to stop right there. Joshua, this is a vision that Zechariah has of Joshua the high priest. And in this vision, he's actually representing the nation of Israel who had been through trauma, conquered, wars, some of it from their disobedience, but they have been through a lot. Joshua is representing them, and it said he was in filthy garments. Many times when I talk to my clients who come and they've been through tra uh, trauma, they talk in a language as though the way they feel is as though they have filthy garments on. Now, the one line from that passage, the log snatched from the fire. For those of you who have trauma and you are believers, you are a log snatched from a fire. But you might be a little singed. Hard to play with fire, and I get a little singed. And so... What's interesting here is that, first of all, if you remember, Satan is accusing Joshua. Those who have gone through trauma, whatever that trauma may be, Satan sits there and he accuses. He insults. He attacks. And he tries to put the filthy garments on you. But we, hear, we see God saying, take the dirty garments off. Put festive robes on him. 
The Christian's journey through trauma is about releasing and taking off the filthy clothes and putting on festive robes. Now, no way am I disrespecting the trauma you've gone through. Sometimes the church has done a disservice to kind of sweep it under the car. Oh, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. It hurts. It's a pain. Now, here comes the therapist. I have to do the science part. Trauma, definition, is an emotional response to a terrible event like an accident, a rape, natural disaster. Immediately after the event, the shock and denial are typical. Longer-term reactions include unpredictable emotions, flashbacks, strained relationships, and even physical symptoms like headaches or nausea. We have now discovered that trauma can cause physical ailments well into your adulthood. Events are not traumatic simply because they involve violence. Instead, an individual's perception of the threat or danger is what, is what causes the trauma. According to the DSM-5, trauma can result when an individual directly experiences an adverse event, witnesses that event, or learns from it, about it from others. For example, here's the ways that people can have trauma. First of all, directly experiencing the traumatic event. Number two, witnessing someone else going through a traumatic event. A child, for example, watching their parents get into a physical fight or watching mom be physically abused. He may not be abused, but he's witnessing still a traumatic event. Number three, learning that the traumatic event has occurred to close family members or friends. I presently have a Ukrainian woman coming to my office. Of course, she's here. But as she sat in my office the other day, she's crying because her family's still in Kiev. Some of them are there because they choose to stay and fight. The others are there because they're stuck. And they were around the children's hospital that got bombed a couple weeks ago about the Russians, and they got to see dead children's bodies. This traumatized the woman in my office. Or experiencing a, a repeated or extreme exposure to adverse details of your life. Poverty can be traumatic. Someone who lives in poverty on a daily basis is a trauma. How is this shown? Sometimes it happens in recurrent, involuntary, intrusive, distressing memories. The memories, you might be 60 years old, but something that happened to you at 10, it's just as vivid 50 years later as it was at the time. You might have recurring distressing dreams. You might have a disassociative, a disassociative reaction. You just zone out. You might even forget about the memory. See, it, it could go either way. You always remember it, or so, you might suppress the memory. So when we look at this, we go, well, the problem has always been there used to be a time that it was only said the only people that experienced trauma or PTSD, as we call it so many times, you either had to be in the military in a war, a police officer, or a fireman, or in a car accident. We have now expanded that to all the things I've talked about. Now, for the sake of, I know this is getting, but when we're talking about 
serious topic here. I make no apology that we need to discuss this. We're talking about molestation. We're talking about childhood abuse. We're talking about physical violence in a domestic situation. All those now cause PTSD. So when we look at this, there's, there's trauma, and I want everybody to be aware of this. Trauma is trauma to that individual. Now, there's, different, there's some things. My wife, in her cruelty, made me go ziplining in Costa Rica. It was the most horrific experience that anybody has ever had in their life. My, my wife just went it. My children went over it. I was a blood bubbling ball of fear. I have a fear of heights. And I'm just like sweating and I'm shaking. And all the people sitting around my kids are going, what does he do for a living? He's a therapist. <laughs> to me, it's traumatic. To my wife, she's all swinging around, going on like this, waving her legs all over the place. Now, I, I use that jokingly, but I wanted to use that as an illustration. What may not be traumatic to you does not mean that it's not traumatic to the person sitting next to you. There's no judgments here. Oh, well, you're traumatized over that. What, what's the big deal about you? We want to know this because this is how Satan gets in and keeps us from doing what we need to do as a church. Now I'm back to preacher now. Where does this all start? Satan. We live, there's evil in this world. In the Garden of Eden, this is why, this is how trauma works through Satan. Satan's kicked out of heaven. He was the most beautiful angel, most powerful angel. He rebels, he gets kicked out. God does all this creation. This is a very important part of this. Mankind is the star in the crown of creation for God. In his eyes, we're it. We are the manifest glory of God that he put in. His creation was in mankind. Satan hates us for that. Satan knows his destiny is hell. So between the, that time and when he is sentenced to hell for eternity, he wants to destroy God's glory. He wants to get in the way. He knows that we are the apple of God's eye, and he wants to take that apple and poke it in God's eye. He wants to do that. And uh, Diana Langbert, who wrote Suffering in the Heart of God, she made this great observation about Satan. Now, this, there's the logic side of your brain, the emotional side of your brain. I know your logic side of your brain believes what I'm about to say, but I'm appealing to the emotional. I want you to listen to what I say. There's four things about Satan when it comes to this. Number one, he's the author and father of sin. He was an angel who excelled in strength and beauty. He had the privilege of serving before the face of God and in that glorious place attempted to supplant the only one worthy of worship. He took many angels with him, and he proceeded to take the human race as well. Number one, that's the first point. Second point, he's the father of lies. He is the deceiver. Nothing he says can be trusted. 
He who has seen the face of God and knows his character would have us believe God is neither good nor worthy of our worship. He would have us follow him and attempt to supplant the almighty God. He will say anything, use anything, twist anything to achieve his end. He will use the words of God himself. Note that it is a great and powerful weapon because that is also how he tried to tempt Christ. And number three, this is the most important one. I want you to really feel the emotion about this because this is so true. This is about Satan. His power animates from an implacable malice. His cruelty is insatiable. He is relentless to pursue. Nothing is beneath him. He, not only will he stoop to any evil imaginable, he will use any good to aid his cause. Do not forget the scripture describes him as an angel of light. Light is what we associate with God. He comes looking like God as much as he is able to in order to deceive us and delude us into thinking we are following God when in fact we are walking after the evil one himself. Now I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but again, Clay, we know he's a bad guy. Point number four is that he's good at all that. Now going back to three, there is nothing. I, 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 want us to, I want to touch the emotional part of your brain right now. Your logic knows this. There is nothing so evil that he will not try to take away the glory of God away from you. You, I'm sure, have heard disgusting stories. Me as a therapist have heard people in my office, stories, you get to the point, I can't hear anything worse than I've heard before, and someone surprises me. There is evil. He will stoop to anything to destroy, to tarnish the glory of God on your life. He does it because he hates you. He does it because he hates God. He wants to ruin everything. That is Satan. Why is it so important? Because here's the thing. This is why trauma affects us so much. You were created for the glory of God. We are the crown of his creation. And if he can take away the glory, if he can put a tarnish on the glory of you, it will affect every aspect of your life. This is why we're speaking. That's why pastor thinks this is important. Because understand, what trauma can do, it gets in the way of God's purpose for your life. It distracts you. It gets you off, off track. You see, you got to understand something. When you have trauma, it can go on to affect relationships, your ministry, your daily living, your job, your marriage, your relationship with your kids, and Satan is laughing because that's his will. That's why this is important. This is why it's important to God because I'm, just my quick state, and I, this is just a very short list. We could probably, in our support group, we're going to go over these people. Listen to the people in the Bible who really do classify as a therapist, I, I'm a professional, I can do this, of who has PTSD? Listen to this list. Adam and Eve. Joseph in the book of Genesis. Dinah in the book of Genesis. Moses, Ruth, Elijah, Peter, John, Paul, 
Malchus, thief on the cross, woman at the well, woman caught in adultery. And here's the most controversial one. Listen to me very carefully here. One I saved for last. Victim of abuse. Jesus Christ himself. For years they avoided that. But let's not do it. Hebrews says we serve a high priest who has experienced everything that we have gone through including the pain. So when you sit there and say, I was physically abused, Jesus comes to you and says, I know how that is. When you say, I was betrayed by someone I trusted, Jesus goes, yeah, I was betrayed too. When we go, I suffered for something I did not do, I was innocent. Jesus goes, hello. We serve a high priest who can, and the way the scripture says it, he sympathizes with us. So for every one of you that has had trauma, let me just tell you right now, you serve a savior who can come beside you, place his hand on your shoulder and says, I know what it's like to hurt. We don't serve someone. Just get over it. Come on. Look at me. The Bible calls him the man of sorrows. The suffering servant. In fact, I want to read a passage of scripture, and you know this, but I want you to think of this passage of scripture as it relates to trauma. Isaiah 53. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no stately form of majesty that we would look at him, nor an appearance that we would take pleasure in him. Then he was awfully plain looking. For those of you who were bullied because of the way you were, that you looked, once again, Jesus, Jesus comes and he puts his hand on your shoulder and says, I know what it's like to be made fun of. A man of great pain and familiar with sickness. And like one whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we had no regard for him. However, it was our sicknesses that he himself bore, and listen to this, and our pains that he carried. Yet we ourselves assume that he had been afflicted, struck down by God and humiliated. But he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment of our well-being was laid upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each has turned in his own way. But the Lord has caused the wrongdoing of us all to fall on him. I want to get to you the power of that passage of Scripture. Every pain that ever took place on a human being, every pain that was going to happen to this day and in the future, as he was suffering his shame on the cross, he took the pain of your abuse, the pain of your trauma, and he took it to the cross with him. The scripture says this, he took our shame and he nailed it to the cross. Now, I'm also realistic. Oh, Clayton, that makes my pain feel so much better. 
No, it does not. But there's something about knowing that we serve a Savior that looks at us, not just this, oh, poor thing. You can look us in the eye and go, I'm here with you. I was there. So what does trauma do? What do how does Satan work on this? Now, for those of you who've been around me enough, you know that I, I talk a lot about this. Much, many times our trauma, back to the, I'm back to therapist again. I'm off the thing. People with trauma, and maybe you'll recognize this in yourself, or maybe you'll recognize this into a loved one, in a loved one, but this helps explain a lot of people. A lot of us, when we have our recovering from trauma, we learn four things in order to handle not feeling safe. Trauma is about making us not feel safe anymore. Four Fs. You either become a fighter. Men did this to me. I'm going to make every man that I come across in my life miserable now. You want to see conflict? Just say something to me. I'm going to fight you. Every woman that's hurt me, I'm going to make every woman pay. Become a fighter. Or you might become a flight person. There's trouble there. I'm going over there. I you know anybody that just runs away from conflict? They don't feel safe. Or you become a freezer. Deer in the headlights. I can't fight. I can't run. I'm just going to sit here and ignore the issue, and maybe it'll go away on its own. Because I don't feel safe. Or you become a fawn. Fawner. What can I do to make you happy so you're not mad at me? Please. Opens yourself up for a lot more future abuse by a person who takes advantage of that. Codependency. I'm a therapist. Codependency then. But here's how it also hurts us. We lose our purpose. I'm doing this in really succinct time here. This could, I could have gone an hour on that one. You lose your purpose. You lose relationships. One person hurt you 20 years ago. Everybody in your life now represent, is represented by them. It's harder to find God's will. It's harder to do ministry when you're in pain. It's harder to show God's glory in your life when the devil is tarnishing the glory on yours. And here's the big thing. You come to me for counseling, we, we delve into this. Trauma forces someone to come up with a negative belief about themselves. A child who is abused at the age of six grows up with this belief of I have no worth. It's like these glasses are I have no worth. And at six years old, they put them on and they look at the whole world through the glasses of I have no worth. I meet Ray. Hello, Ray. I'm Clayton. I have no worth. Hello, everybody. I have no worth. When I get married, I tell my spouse, I have no worth. 
because I look through that. Satan, make sure these glasses get it. You're abused as a child. You have, you're trash. You have no worth. And we put these glasses on and we, and we keep doing See, your brain, when that trauma hits your brain, this is what pastor was, he said I'd fix it. He did a good job. He did an okay job. But when a traumatic event happens in your life, and there's a strong emotional attachment. It's bonded together and it's stuck there. It's as though your brain takes a Polaroid picture. You ever wonder why you can remember that event like it is happening right now? In second grade, first grade, the most evil woman who ever lived, Mrs. Parker. Uh, it was silent time in the lunchroom. Remember silent time? Ring the door. I had a G.I. Joe lunchbox. And the kid next to me put it under his shirt. Gross. You guys are lucky I take communion with you bacteria-filled people. But anyway... That's a joke. <laughs> it's an OCD joke. I was trying to get it out, and I hear Miss Parker, who was probably 300 years old, and she was the music teacher. Music people. <laughs> Excuse me! And I'm going, wait, where's she going? And then she turns the corner, she comes up to me, grabs me by the shirt, lifts me up, and throws me against the wall. This was 1970, folks, okay? <laughs> she grabs my face as she's yelling at me with spit hitting my face. I remember this in 2022. As though it happened yesterday. I've been laughing about it. In the therapy. Something in me died that day. I shut down. My friends even said Clayton changed. Picture. My life was always about getting in trouble. I became a freezer. Anytime a teacher would start raising her voice. And then I'd become a fawner. Whatever it took to make somebody happy. It took away some of the glory that God had put in my life. Satan will stoop to anything to do this. The next thing. I'm getting on a soapbox, folks, right now. The next thing Satan does, bear with me here. He tries to keep trauma silent in our society. Yes, I found it, and we know what that person did to you, but keep it quiet to protect the family, to protect your father 
to protect your mother, to protect the school, to protect the church, to protect a minister. A girl that I know was molested by the youth minister. And it was told to her by the church leadership, the church is growing. If it's found out that your father hits, it will hurt our reputation. Folks, I'm about to tell you something. I make no apologies. It's happened in our churches. It's happened in our homes. It's happened in our families. It is from the pit of hell. Secrets keep people sick. Secrets keep people in shame. Now, I'm not asking you to come. Everyone stand up here and tell everybody your trauma. Because not everybody's safe to hear your trauma. Not everybody's safe to hear your story. But what I do not like the fact of Satan is about secrets. He's about hiding. He's about keep this pain inside you. Don't get help because it will hurt somebody else. We talk about, in therapy, we talk about protecting the organism. The organism could be a church. It could be family it could be a school that's the organism and people say we have to protect it but do we not realize by allowing that secret to stay we're actually destroying the organism dan langberg also said this about that very subject and i like the way she said it if i can find where she said she said that very secret to protect the organism ends up entangling, suffocating, poisoning, and, and destroying the very organism we are trying to protect. That's Satan's doing. Jesus never asked you to make your pain be a secret. He never meant for you to feel guilty because something happened to you. That's Satan. That is his destruction of our lives. So now I'm switching to the church. What do we do? I'm really going through this stuff. I mentioned this when I preached last year. The church used to be at the front lines of this topic. And we punted the ball to the world. I will admit, there are therapists out there that are nuts. That preach a therapy that is not good, it's not godly, it's nothing. I will, there is junk out there. There's junk in some churches too, but we don't throw out all the churches. The reason why the secular world took this topic and they're doing their thing is because the church backed off. If anything should be going on, the Holy Spirit-empowered, led church should be in the front line of this war to fight Satan at a trauma level because we have the power to completely, totally defeat him. It's time that we're at the forefront and we quit putting it under the carpet. Too many of our people, if they're not going to get help from the church, they will turn to the secular world. And we have the answer. We have the power. So we, we need to take this opportunity here. So, what are we going to do? How do we do this? For those of you who have known me for a long time, 
I have read this story before. I apologize. Those of you who are new to me, you get to hear it. I've read this story and I've used it for so many different other sermons. When we had our ministry for uh, special needs ministry, I would read this. This is my Shea story. Some of you might remember it. Now, as I read this story, I want you to think in terms of Shea as being a victim of trauma. And the boys in the playground, the church. Right? I always start crying during this. So bear with me because this is a great story. In Brooklyn, New York, there's a school called Chush that caters to learning disabled children. All right? We're going to view them as the trauma. Some children remain in this school for their entire school career while others can be mainstreamed. There was a fundraising dinner one time, and the father of one of the children delivered a speech that would never be forgotten. After extolling the school and its dedicated staff, he cried out, Where is God's perfection in my son Shea? Everything God's done is done with perfection. But my child cannot understand things as other children do. My child cannot remember facts and figures as other children do. Where is God's perfection? Now let me stop there. Sometimes we would say that when we come across someone who's had horrible trauma, we're trying, where's God's perfection in this? Why did this happen? The audience was shocked by the question, pained by the father's anguish. Still by this question. I believe the father answered that when God brings a child like this into the world, the perfection that he seeks is in the way people react to that person. He then told the following story about his son, Shea. One afternoon, Shea and his father walked past a park where some boy Shea knew was playing baseball. Shea asked, do you think they will let me play? Shea's father knew that his son was not at all athletic and that most boys would not want him on their team. But Shea's father understood that if his son was chosen to play, it would give him a comfortable sense of belonging. Shea's father approached one of the boys in the field and asked if Shea could play. The boy looked around for guidance from his teammates. Getting none, he took matters into his own hands and said, we are losing by six runs. And the game is in the eighth inning. I guess he can be on our team. And we'll try to put him up to bat in the ninth inning. Shea's father was ecstatic as Shea smiled broadly. Shea was told to be put, put on a glove and go play short center field. That's where I always had to be playing. Anyway. In the bottom of the eighth inning, Shea's team scored a few runs, but was still behind by three. In the bottom of the ninth inning, Shea's team scored again, and now with two outs, the bases loaded with the potential winning run at bay, Shea had his turn at bat. Would the team actually let Shea bat at this juncture and give away their chance to win the game? Surprisingly, Shea was given the bat. Remember, Shea represents people with drama. Everyone knew that it was all but impossible because Shea didn't even know how to hold the bat properly, let alone know how to hit with it. However, Shea stepped up to the plate. The pitcher moved a few steps to lob the ball in softly so Shea could at least be able to make contact. The first pitch came in and Shea swung clumsily and missed. One of Shea's teammates came up to Shea, the church, coming up to the person with trauma, and together they held the bat and faced the pitcher waiting for the next pitch. The pitcher again took a few steps forward to toss the ball softly towards Shea. As the pitch came in, Shea and his teammates swung at the bat together. They hit a slow ground ball to the pitcher. The pitcher picked up the soft grounder, could easily have thrown the ball to the first baseman. Shea would have been out, and that would have ended the game. Instead, the pitcher took the ball and threw it on a high arc to right field, far beyond the reach 
of the first baseman. Everyone started yelling, Shea, run to first, run to first. Never in his life had Shea run to first. He scampered down the baseline wide-eyed and startled. By the time he reached first base, the right fielder had the ball. He could have thrown the ball to the second baseman who would have tagged Shea out, who was still running, by the way. But the right fielder understood what the pitcher's intentions were, so he threw the ball high and far over to the third baseman's head. Everyone yelled, run to second, run to second. Shea ran towards second base as the runners ahead of him deliriously circled the bases towards home. As Shea reached second base, the opposing shortstop ran to him. The opposing shortstop ran to him, turned him in the direction of third base and shouted, run to third. As Shea rounded third, boys from both teams ran behind him screaming, Shea, run home. Shea ran home with all 18 boys running beside him, stepped on home plate, and all 18 boys lifted him on their shoulders, made him the hero as he had just hit a grand slam and won the game for his team. That day, said the father, with tears rolling down his face, those 18 boys reached their level of God's perfection. People in trauma coming into our doorstep, to our doorway, are the Shayas. They don't know where home base is. They don't know where first base. They don't, they don't. How do I hold a bat? The church runs beside them. We don't look down on them. We say, come sit with me. Are they rough around the edges? Yeah, they can be. They can be a fighter or a flighter or a freezer or a fawner. But when you realize that this is not just because they're that way, because Satan has declared war on them, the church re reaches. We, where is God's perfection for letting a little girl get molested? For a little boy being beaten up by a father? Where is God's perfection? It's how the church runs beside them. It's how the church encourages them and shows them the glory of God that he intended for them. That's the perfection and power of God alive in the church fighting trauma. So where do we come with purpose and provision? You notice in the Bible so many people who had been PTSD'd had a king's provision. Joseph was beaten up by his brothers, thrown in prison, accused of something he didn't do, and the king put his ring on him. The king put the robe on him. When you look at the stories that we said, it's the king's provision. For those of you who have trauma, there is a king ready, ready to put the king's provision on your shoulders, give you the king's ring, and to remind you of the glory you were intended for that's based on him. Satan doesn't want you to know that, though. I want you to listen to because the Bible talks about, and I'm closing. I think I'm going to just read these scriptures off. Listen to how the Bible can be encouraging. Jesus promised us tribulation. He said, "These things I have spoken to you, that so in me you may have peace." In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. 
Beloved, do not, this is Peter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Peter's saying, this is really encouraging, isn't it? Do not be surprised, which comes upon you for your testing. There's something strange were happening to you. But to the degree, listen to this, that you are sharing the sufferings of Christ. Keep on rejoicing. So at the revelation of his glory, you may also rejoice and be overjoyed. How about that? What is that? That's great. Looking only at Jesus, the originator and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He intercedes for us. The shame you have that the devil keeps whispering in your ear, Jesus despises that. He despises it. Jesus himself said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives of trauma and recovery to the sight of the blind to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. You want some more here? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also him freely give us all things, provision? Who will bring charges against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, but rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or trouble or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sorrow? That's a lot of trauma there. But in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquering through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death. That's a lot. Nor, and just to cover it all, not even any other created thing, just in case he missed something, will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the extraordinary greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying around in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Hmm. And when you were dead in your wrongdoings, I'm just reading a bunch of scripture here, and the uncircumcision of flesh, you, he made you alive together with him. He's with you. Having forgive us all our wrongdoings, having canceled the certificate of death, debt consisting of decrees against us, the accusations of the devil, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way. I love this part. Having nailed it to the cross, he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them. Those demons that whisper in your ear that you have no worth, he has made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. 
the, the picture is that that shame that you felt, he shamed them. I have been crucified with Christ that it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Revelation. That, you know it's at the end. All right. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser, this is how we fight trauma, folks. I'm always putting this thing around trauma. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. Listen to this. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. And the last one, I promise, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne says this, Behold, I am making all things, what? New. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. In closing, from a preacher, which means absolutely nothing. The pain, we're not solving this tonight, folks. They defeated him by the testimony. Your pain can become a testimony. What Satan has intended for evil, it's a rough journey. It's a tough journey. There's some bruising along the way. But God can take that. And the picture the Bible says is, you know, the Romans used to conquer their enemies and take them back to Rome. He, they would strip them naked, sorry, and drive them through the streets of Rome for utter humiliation. The Bible says that's what he does to the powers and authorities that have, made, have lied to you, who have done things to you. He will publicly humiliate them. Why? Because he despises the shame that you've experienced. I could go on, but I will not. I would like everyone to close your eyes. I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand. You got trauma, raise your hand. This is a coping thing I do with my clients, and I just want everyone to practice. We will probably do this in our support. I want you to pick the most secure place you've ever place that brought you joy just think for a second could be grandma's house could be some friend's house some place where you felt safe you felt secure you felt joy you can remember that I want everyone to remember that right now whether you had trauma or not I'll give you a couple seconds here this is a weird altar call I want you to think about that the place that brought you joy and security I want you to sense how it smelled, what, you saw, what it looked like, what it sounded like, if there's sounds, if there's anything. I had a woman who, her grandma's bakery, she could smell a bread. It was her joy place. Just 
fit in the joy of that place. But in steps this 33-year-old rabbi named Jesus. He comes beside you and he places his hand on your shoulder. And he says, I am so proud of you. The day you were born was a day of joy for me. I am so glad you belong to me. I'm sorry for the pain that you may be going through. That was not my purpose. That was not my destiny for you. That was not my purpose. The beauty that I see in you came from me. All the trouble you're going through, all the pain you feel, give it to me because I know where it's been. Just live in the security of that. We serve a Savior who can sympathize and empathize with us. Lord Jesus, I just thank you right now for every person that's in here right now. There are people right now who have experienced trauma, and there's, maybe this has stirred things up in them. But Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit to begin his ministry on their heart right now. Maybe there's been someone who never realized it, but they did have a trauma, and it's affected how it's affected their life. Lord, I pray right now, your Holy Spirit begin his ministry right now on their life. And for Lord, for everyone else, I hope that what breaks your heart about those who have been used and abused by Satan, because all abuse comes from him. Lord, Put that passion in the heart of this church that Satan cannot continue to claim the abused, the traumatized, the sufferer. We will run home with them. And that will be our ministry. Lord, I thank you. Amen. I'm done. And I didn't cry during the Shea story. Thank you. April 13th, Kevin Evans classroom support group. Folks, let me tell you something, please. And I know I joke a lot, but I take this seriously. We need to quit letting Satan have a foothold. That I respect the pain you went through. I'm not saying we just shove it under the carpet. It happened. It's reality. Greater is he that is in you that is in the world.